Howdy there. Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable, the discipleship podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. We encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. We are here today on January the 8th, 2024, the first podcast we're recording of this Pastors of the Roundtable of 2024. Um, Heading towards the conclusion of our discussion, walking through Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, um, uh, as we've been slowly progressing through it, um, and we're starting to really get into the really good, good parts um, of it, um, the stuff that's really exciting uh, to talk about Luther in these uh, theses, these statements, if you've been following our podcast series, has been slowly trying to eliminate all of our trust and hope in anything of ourselves or in anything of this world, and instead to help us to place our whole trust and confidence completely in the incarnate Christ who, um, who has taken to himself our, our, uh, our, all of our sins and all of our shame and guilt and taken it all the way to the cross and has made us righteous and we can be confident in him and in his love uh, towards us. And so that's what Luther has been slowly doing through all of these theses. And today he um, is going to, uh, we're going to look at theses uh, 22 through 24. If you're interested in them, I'm stealing these from Caleb Keith, the uh, who's translated uh, these theses. You can see them on 1517.org or he's got a book um, that has been published through 1517, um, a devotional book going through these uh, statements. And so we are on theses 22 through 24, and this is going to be talking about wisdom. What does true wisdom look like? The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. What is the law of God for? How do we use it rightly? And then lastly, looking again at everything um, through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I'll read these theses, and then we'll kind of kick through our discussion, kick it off here uh, beginning. Um, Theses 22, that particular wisdom, which uses works, to interpret the invisible things of God entirely inflates, blinds, and hardens. Again, Theses 23, he says, The law works the wrath of God, lays slaughter, curses, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. Theses 24, Yet wisdom is not of itself evil, nor should the law be avoided, but without the theology of the cross. Man misuses the greatest things as if they were the worst things. So Luther, just before this, has said there are two types of people in this world. And the reality is, is we are all theologians. We, every single one of us has a way in which we interpret the world, ideas that we have about who God is, how God works, and what our relationship to him looks like or ought to look like, and how, whatever the problems may be between us and God or the world, we also have a way in which we think that that problem can be resolved. Now, we can have right answers to those questions or wrong answers to those questions, but the reality is is all of us have answers and have ideas and notions about who God is, who we are, what the world is all about, and how we find God and how we get right with God and back in harmony with God, whatever that means. And that's what Luther is saying. There's two types of people here. And Thesis 22 and 23 in particular are describing, whether from the perspective of wisdom, worldly wisdom, or also the law, how 
theologians of, he calls them glory, theologians who, people who have ideas about God that are not based upon and centered in and flowing from the cross of Jesus Christ, how we instead look at the world, interpret reality, and think about ourselves in relationship to God. So we'll start with this. Hopefully we can break down some of these statements because they can be uh, difficult to understand initially because uh, they're very condensed and um, they can be uh, just somewhat confusing a little bit the way they're worded, Um, but hopefully we can get some ideas um, out of them. The first thing is we want to talk about the first thesis is this, theologians of glory, those who um, turn away from the cross, those who go in their own strength. This is natural man. This is all of us in our own strength. The way in which we look at the world, we follow the wisdom of the world. And we'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And Paul says that the world looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and looks at it as foolishness. But, and, but we realize that the reality is, is that the cross is the wisdom of God. But in the world's wisdom, we they interpret the, the cross and Jesus in a way that looks at it as foolish. And yet, Paul tells us that's actually the wisdom and the riches of, of God. The reality is, is that the wisdom of the world has an appearance of wisdom, and the wisdom of the world is never satisfied. I'll start off with this, with this quote from Andy Wilson, then we can maybe launch into some discussion here. He says here, um, in writing about these, uh, about the, the Heidelberg Disputation, he says this, the basic problem with the theologian of glory, in other words, all of us before we're Christians, is that he thinks that he can figure out how God works apart from divine revelation. He thinks that he can rely on his reason to understand God. The theologian of glory assumes that God operates in the same manner that the world operates. He thinks that the principle of reciprocity governs our relationship with God since it governs so much of life in this world. We naturally think that those who do good will be rewarded and those who do evil will be punished. And in a theology of glory, we, pl- we apply this principle to the way of salvation. So what we do as um, when it comes to wisdom, we look at the world and we look at the way the world is and we think that's the way God is. So if I, um, if our relationships in this world are um, conditional, I do this for you, if you do this for me, then we must think that our relationship with God must be conditional. And so we use these things, we use our own reason and our own preconceived ideas and say, this is how God must be. And yet the reality is that's not the way um, the way God is. I've been talking a lot, guys. Any thoughts before I... I have some stuff from the Bible that might make this a little clearer, but any thoughts initially? Well, I mean, you talked about 1 Corinthians yeah. 1, which is where this is coming from, I would, I would assume. Uh, I don't know. That probably could be read. That would be helpful. Um I don't have it. I will open a Bible. I will open a Bible. Yeah, open one of the eight you have here. (laughs) I have supplied Bibles. That is one of my Bibles. This is one of my Bibles. (laughs) Um, But you see this struggle, and I think we all feel this struggle probably just being church members. We hear preaching or we go to Sunday school and we see what the Bible says, but a lot of times it does kind of push against cultural norms or cultural strategies of success. It is very different. 
you know, Jesus saying stuff like the first will be last and the last will be first. And you see his disciples even struggling with yes. that, right? Of, yes. of talking to Jesus and, and saying, hey, can we sit at your right hand, right. you know, and these different things. And Jesus just pushing against that because you're thinking worldly, right? Yeah, this is how that you're you're thinking, and and so and that's why it's so important that we need to be centered biblically on all of our all of our decision making and and who we even are, right? That the Bible is central to that, and that we're looking through that biblical framework at all times because there are things in the world that when you start dabbling in it, it does make sense, such as acquiring wealth. When we look at that from a worldly standard, that does make sense. It makes sense to have money and to try to get more money because more money will make life easier. Mm-hmm. You won't have to worry about as much bills. and Or if I get sick, how am I going to pay for it? Or all stuff. If I have the money, then I won't have to worry about that. Right? That's what we see in the world. Or another thing the world would say is keep acquiring education. Keep mm-hmm. getting smarter. That's what we need. We need more education in order to succeed, right? right? So the battle against drugs or whatever. People just need to know what's They right. just need to know that if you do <laughs> cocaine, it's very bad for you. And when they know that, they won't do that. That's what the world says. Right. That's why they put on cigarettes, this will kill you. They still put that, they'll put that on cigarettes. This will kill you if you do this. Yeah. Cigarette sales are very high. Right. And so what does that kind of prove? It's like the world thinks education is what's going to get us there. That actually isn't what's going to work mm-hmm. because the reason we go to drugs and the reason we go to these things is because of sin and struggles, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not an education thing. No. You know, the reason money doesn't satisfy, because that's not what we're looking for. That's not right. what we need for satisfaction, right? And so I think that's what's being yes. said here in this yeah. is, is we need to see it biblically. And as Christians, we need right. to be wise in thinking of things, not worldly but uh, yeah. scripturally. And this really requires a new birth. Yeah. Because you can't see things the way, the proper way. Like this, What you're saying, by the way, about like the desire for money or even knowledge or yeah. whatever. Luther mm-hmm. actually explicitly says this. Um, he says, the lust for knowledge is not satisfied by the acquisition of wisdom, but is that much more aroused. Likewise, lust yeah. for glory is not satisfied by the acquisition of glory, mm-hmm. nor is the lust for control satisfied by power and authority, nor is the desire for praise satisfied by praise. And so the reality is, is we think if I could just get this one thing, then I would be satisfied. The reality is, is no, you're actually even longing for it more because it never is going to be able to satisfy you. And that's where what Luther says here, it says, lust cannot be cured. And by lust, he's talking about just any longing, not just sexual lust, but he's talking about any kind of longings that you have cannot be cured by satisfaction, but by extinguishing it. So your desire for money will not be sat, will not be cured by acquiring tons of money. It will be solved whenever you kill that desire and are content with what God's given you, right? That's a totally different way than the world typically thinks about this. We think if I gain this, if I, if I, you know, so for instance, uh, one of the things that we see in our, in our culture today in the sexual revolution is I have these feelings. I have these inborn feelings or propensities or ideas. And if I satisfy those, 
wherever my sexual identity, I think, may lie, then I will be satisfied and I will be whole. And what we actually find is, no, that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy whether those are heterosexual desires or homosexual desires or whatever kinds of desires those are. They will never make you whole. The only way to become whole is by extinguishing sinful desire and, and quelling it. And the only way that that happens is by crucifying it by the cross. Mm-hmm. And so worldly wisdom actually does not solve the problem. It actually enhances the problem even more. And that's where I think Luther is pretty helpful. I actually really love that quote. When you say it, I mean, the idea of a new birth actually goes further than that. Because it's not just the idea of getting rid of your desires. It's having desire in new things. Yeah. No, right? Better things. Because, like, that is actually Buddhism. Like, that's the whole idea behind Buddhism is just to remove all desire. Well, that's why I said remove sinful desire. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, like, that's that would, in in a different way, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, that would agree with that. Yeah, I just need to remove these desires that are wrong or that I shouldn't want. Sure. But I mean that's that's the whole idea behind Buddhism is removing desire being content in general, with suffering. Yeah. But that's different than that's why I said specifically sinful desire though. Well, I'm, I'm right. trying to differentiate it too. Right. Yes, right. That it's yeah, you're you're removing those but they're replaced now with good desires because you're a new man Correct. in Christ. Correct. Yeah. 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 yeah and no. Augustine talks about that in his Confessions, you know, about he uses the word like toys trifling toys you know pleasures of this world and how to overcome that you have to have a greater desire or delight that in fact cross cancels if you will that lower desire and i think uh, i think that's what i'm hearing you say and i think that's a good point you know like david says delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart what happens is we get you know, especially in the world, we get alerted to these lesser desires. Like C.S. Lewis talks about, like building a a, a, a mud pie in a, in a you know the back alley versus building a sandcastle by the by the seashore, you know, or by the ocean. And we we get caught up in these lesser desires, but we have to have a greater desire that can kind of trump, if you will, these lesser mm-hmm. desires. And Augustine talks about that, which I think was very helpful. Right. So, kind of similar yeah. to what Luther yeah, and, the, and the only well, yeah, the only way to do that is to be killed and made new, yeah, right? Made alive, yeah. right? Yeah, to be born again. Death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk to normal people, um, by that I mean, I guess you could say some church people, but even just like lost people, you can really see this come out and you can see the idea of being a slave to sin. Because mm-hmm. most people mm-hmm. who I talk to are are sick of the rat race. Mm-hmm. Like they know money's not going to bring happiness or power or glory mm-hmm. or any of this stuff. Like the, when mm-hmm. you talk to them, they really do know that, yet they can't get out of that mm-hmm. cycle. Right. And uh, and it, it, mm-hmm. it's sad to hear. But I think even us as Christians, we still we struggle with that. We we know a lot of these answers, but we still struggle to get out of that uh, cycle. And so even even with the new birth that we're that we were talking about, um, it doesn't make everything go away. You know, Correct. Um, we still have desires for sinful things or for. Um, or to to be glorified in this world for our name to be known, or what I see a lot is we want our children's names to be known uh, for different reasons, and and so we'll go to great extremes, and and we just you just end up realizing that that, that, that that's not the answer. Uh, thankfully, as a Christian, you we hopefully we know that answer, um, and we seek forgiveness of our of our sin. But there's a lot of people out there who are running this race that we talk about. 
uh, and they they know that that's not the solution, but right. I don't think they know another right place to go. Right. Yeah, and what happens is is um, and we talked about this in my class last yesterday that the reality is is the gospel Jesus Christ is a mystery. And the idea there is that he's a secret that's hidden from us on, in our in, in, that we cannot grasp by our ordinary human perceptions or abilities um, unless the Holy Spirit uh, causes us to see these things, see Jesus for who he is. And that's what theologians of glory always judge Jesus by the world instead of judging the world by Jesus. Um, and so, for instance, uh, Harold St. Bell says this, mystery means something beyond the reach of human sensory perception and intellect. And that's certainly true when it comes to the true identity of Jesus. No one could tell that Jesus was God just by looking at him. It's just the same today. No one can conclude that Jesus is God using human sensory and reasoning capacity alone. It remains an article of faith. Yet this faith is not a stab in the dark. It's grounded in the tangible reality of Jesus' human flesh and blood, born of his virgin mother, crucified, dead, and buried, but then on the third day raised from the dead, 40 days later, to ascend into glory. It sounds like a fairy tale, but it's not. And you can see this in Jesus' own life. Um, whenever you see multiple people that whenever they looked at Jesus from the wisdom of the world, they could not tell that Jesus was God. Mm-hmm. So the scribes, right, when Jesus says, um, Jesus is there healing the paralytic and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. They look at Jesus and say, this man's blaspheming because he's just a man. Only God can forgive sins. Or even his hometown, right, when Jesus comes and ministers there, they say, this is Joseph's son. This guy's not God. How can, right, in John chapter 6, they say, how can he now say that he came down from heaven? We, he's been with us the whole time. We know who this guy is. Or um, his own disciples. They have to have their eyes opened gradually to who Jesus is. They have confusion in the wisdom of the world to see who he is. And, and later on, from the Jewish council and Pilate, this hidden wisdom, this mystery of Jesus is hidden from them because worldly wisdom cannot understand who Jesus is from its own perspective and with its own abilities. They are always falling short. And so theologians of glory, though, will always, we always are tempted, though, to use the world's wisdom to judge Jesus um, instead of judging the world by, by Jesus. The second thing that theologians of glory do, however, is not simply related to wisdom, but it's related to the law. Uh, Luther writes here, this, the, thesis 23, the law works the wrath of God, lays slaughter, curses, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. One of the problems with theologians of glory and with us as natural um, men is that we think um, the law is something that we can do. We're like the Israelites standing at the bottom of the mountain of Mount Sinai whenever God speaks the law to them, and um, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. No problem. Um, And we are like that when we first come to the law because we haven't really understood the law's purpose. And so theologians of glory, all of us, um, apart from Jesus, use the law unlawfully. Um, Stealing from Paul's writing in uh, 1 Timothy, he describes people. He says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul here says, the law is good. There's no problem with the law, but it is possible to use the law unlawfully. It is possible to use the the word of God, in particular, the, the law, the commands, in a way that they're not designed to be used and to use them beyond their bounds. And that's what Paul is saying about these teachers. These teachers are quoting scripture, but they don't know how to use scripture. And this has always been the the way in which error and heresy has come into the church, not by necessarily opposing Scripture and saying we don't believe in Scripture, but by using Scripture wrongfully in a way that is against what the text is actually intending. And so um, theologians of glory love the law in in the way in which they use it, but they don't love the law in what it really has come to do. Um, so one of the first things is um, they use Scripture wrongfully. Luther, I'm going to quote from Luther here. I, he has a commentary on First Timothy. And uh, one of the things Luther said this, we have a battle with heretics about the use of Scripture. We say that they abuse Scripture and that we have the right meaning. Here the sacramentarians distinguish concerning the law and the use of the law. To the Christian, the law is most sacred. Because it is divine wisdom, it is a very fine and sacred thing. The fact of the matter is this, both the wicked and the pious man have the law. Notice that again, what he says, both the wicked and the pious man have the law. Both the righteous and the wicked have the law. Both have a very good thing, but they disagree over its use. The former misuse a very sacred thing. We teach that one must use it correctly. So it's very important right away to realize that it's possible to use, to, to quote scripture to believe scripture, but to misuse it and thereby to twist it to our own destruction or to the error or um, lack of health of our souls or the souls of other people. So how should we use, what is it, um, how should we use the law and what do we do when we misuse the law? Um, it, preeminently, theologians of glory use the law to justify themselves. They use the law as a ladder that they think they can climb into heaven with. So first of all, they misunderstand who the law is for. Um, Paul explicitly says, the law was given not for just people, not for people who are right with God, but for people who are not right with God, who are unjust. For And he goes through the whole list of all the specific types of people and says, the law is for these people, not for the just Second of all, these theologians of glory, what we do naturally, we, we come to the law and we misunderstand what the law is intended to do. We come to the law and we typically think the law is there to help us do better. The law is there to help us get closer to God. The law is there to help us um, become better people, nicer people, more whatever this, that, or the other thing in a scale But that's actually not what the law is there for. Paul says the law is not intended for just people. The law is intended for unjust people to reveal sin and to restrain sin. And lastly, they misunderstand what the law cannot do, which is take away sin. 
Luther has this long extended section, and it's really good. Um, and so I'm going to read it. Um, he says here, So the law is abused when I assign to the law more than it can accomplish. Good works are necessary, and the law must be kept. But the law does not justify. So right away, I think it's helpful that Luther is saying, Good works are necessary. We should want to do good works. And he'll say that in the next podcast that we do too. But we also have to make sure that we don't assign to the law more than it can accomplish. The law has limitations. It, it cannot justify and it cannot produce good works. He says here, the law is not for the just because he has what the law demands and he has been established without it. The law, in other words, what he's saying is the righteous person, believers, we have everything the law commands. We have it already in Christ. So we are established without it. But the law's purpose is to frighten, he says, and causes trembling. These are the spiritual effects of the law. It really has a double function in an external way to repress violence and spiritually to reveal sins. It restrains the wicked to prevent their living according to their own flesh. And it shows the Pharisees their sins to keep them from pride. Satan, every wicked theologian, and even nature cannot bear to have their works condemned. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit have the battle to fight against confidence in our own works. So Luther later on will say, We assign righteousness not to the law and its works, but to grace alone, which is offered to us through Jesus Christ. The law does this. It teaches that one must do works, serve his brother, and recognize his own sin. These are good things, are they not? to be humble in knowing oneself, to do good for one's neighbor. These are wonderful. But you want to add, this is to be just before God. Those who do not use the law lawfully, that is, as the law ought to be used, should not exalt the law beyond that which the law is or can be. You are using the law not according to its lawful function, but as if it were grace and the Holy Spirit. That's very helpful. The law is not God's grace, and the law is not the Holy Spirit. Um, We don't want to mix those two together. Um, this use of the law is one that is for the just man. You false prophets err when you teach that the law is laid down for the just man. That, you see, is contrary to the nature of both the law and righteousness. The law is laid down for the lawless. This gives the law both its civil and spiritual functions. That wicked man is restrained and is led to a knowledge of himself. Those are the two functions. And lastly, at the last quote here, the two functions of the law are to reveal sinners and restrain them. The third function, however, to remove sin and to justify is limited to this, the Lamb of God and not the law takes away sin. It is Christ who removes sin and justifies. Consequently, we must distinguish between the function of the law and that of Christ. It is the law's function to show good and evil because it shows what one must do and reveals sin which one must not commit. The law, therefore, is good because it shows not only evil, but also the good which one must do. But beyond that, it does not go. It does not kill Og and King Sihon. It merely reveals good and bad. Joshua does the rest. And what he's talking about um, is a comparison between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Joshua, whose Jesus is the greater Joshua, right? So Moses has his limits. Moses can bring us to the edge of the promised land, but only Jesus and the grace of God can bring us all the way in. Um, And so, uh, yeah, 
thoughts real quick about uh, about those big quotes from Luther and what he's trying to get us to see about the use of the law and whether we're using it lawfully or unlawfully. Scott, it's accurate. Scott, yeah. <laughs> Isn't Luther awesome? Yeah, I mean, man. I just love. Oh, yeah. I could just bathe myself in this stuff. This is. <laughs> you should you should bathe in water and soap. <laughs> also, believe me, I okay. do. Okay, I'm just. I do. I'm sure you do. I'm just, just, just clarify. Just a, just I'm just a long haired. No, I don't have long hair. No, short haired yeah. son of a sinner. Yeah, you. Right. Yeah. Just me and Jelly. So Roll. so bring this home for the normal person today. Okay. How do we see instances of theologians of glory using the law unlawfully, do you think, to, today? I think one of the ways that we see this is, well, first of all, it's easy to always pick on the person who says they can be justified by the law. Right, yeah, yeah. That's We all agree with that. What about... Uh, I think in the realm of sanctification, though, it can happen. Yeah. What about, like, see, they misunderstand what the law cannot do, which is take yes. away sin. So one of the things is, is we see a problem in our Christian lives, right? So we are justified with God. We are accepted. Then the question becomes, okay, so... Um, I want to, I, I realize that um, to be a Christian is to live a life of gratitude, thankfulness. I'm called in the Bible to be zealous for good works, um, those kinds of things. And so what we start to do is to think that the law now can sanctify me. So the law can't justify me, but the law can sanctify me. So what I need to do then is um, I become obsessed by focusing on the things I should not do. So I don't want to lie. Okay, so I'm going to try to follow that commandment every day because I know I'm not saved by it. But now I want to be, but I want to be sanctified by the law. So if I if I follow this command repeatedly, I will become more holy. Well, right away, first of all, there's a misunderstanding of what sanctification is all about. Sanctification is God's work, not our work. Um, as the catechisms used to say, it's a work of God's free grace. Um, what actually happens is it's just like somebody, whenever you are, um, you know, sometimes you hear about people who are in a car wreck or they're driving a car and they're so obsessed with missing that pole or so obsessed with missing that car. And all they can think about is I don't want to hit that car. And what they do, they hit the car because they're what they're so obsessed about not doing. They actually find themselves doing. That's exactly what Paul says. The law does in Romans seven. Whenever I am obsessed with not doing that thing, and that's all that's on my mind, I actually end up doing it. I actually end up becoming the person that I don't want to be, because sanctification cannot happen by the law. Actually, it's counterintuitive. The law is good, and the law does tell us what we ought to be, but the only thing that can sanctify us even is Jesus Christ. And so instead, what we need to think is, instead of a mind shift, is I think we need to consistently remind ourselves of the great love God has for us. And actually, Luther had this this amazing, strange confidence that if you really let people just marinate in the gospel, the works would follow naturally. You wouldn't need to go around and beat them with the law in order to say, listen, you're a Christian, that's true, but now you got to really do the work. you got to really put in the work now. He didn't do that. He did say we should do good works, but he thought the gospel and Jesus Christ was what would just spontaneously produce that. Then if we fall into sin, the law's job is to drive us back to Jesus to say, that's not the way we're supposed to act and frighten us and to bring us back to him. That's a little different of a nuance, I think, than oftentimes we think about the way in which we grow in holiness. 
as Christians. We typically want a set of commands to help make us holy, but that can never happen. It won't work. It's never worked. And I actually find it in my own personal life to be counterproductive because the more I focus on what I should not do, I actually find myself doing that. So one of the struggles I think that people have, I don't know if this is what you're saying exactly, but I do think that a way that we can fall into the trap of being theologians of glory as we even as, as Christians, as yeah. we start to find our worth in our obedience Very to good. the law. Very good. Right. We wouldn't say we were justified by the law, but we do start finding our, our worth in it. And so yes. I feel really good at night and worthy to pray to God right. because I did good right. today. But then there are nights when I don't feel worthy to pray to God because I didn't do good today. Yeah. And we have to be careful. Right. We have to be careful with that because our worth is found, what we're saying, in, the cross. in Christ, in cross and what mm-hmm. he's accomplished. Now, of course, we want to honor the Lord and we want to serve him. I want to obey the Ten Commandments, and I'm yes. told to do that. Yes. But I, I'm not finding my worth in that. Um, I'm doing that because I'm worthy to do it yes. in Christ, right? And I, yeah. so I, that's why then we strive. And so mm-hmm. that's, to me, that's the new relationship with the with the law, so to, yes. so to speak, is I'm not going to disregard law. I'm not going to look no. at the law and say, I don't have to do any of that. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ, so I'm justified, right. but I do want to uh, still honor him. But it, it, it's, again, awesome. it's a lot of the motivation. Very good. Yeah. And also, don't hear what Luther or I or no one's. We're not saying the law is bad. No. The law is good. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is we are, though justified, There's a, we are a... Um, we're justified sinners. I do get what you're saying, though, about like the focusing on something. I think this sometimes it's, it's kind of different, but I think people who focus on anxiety all the time are full of anxiety mm-hmm. all the time, and they're always focused on it. Now, I don't know how to get them off of that. I wish I did. I think I could make a lot of money if I could do that. Uh, There's a lot of shops doing that. <laughs> there are a lot of shops. <laughs> doing that. Yeah, you're right. Um but I, I've just noticed that, and or I've noticed too, even people who constantly think about medical issues mm-hmm. are often the ones who are sick a lot and injured a lot. That's <laughs> true. And it's like, it's almost, right. and it's like, and just stop yes. thinking about, or or right now, I'm, I'm dreading 2024 because of election year and everything. Oh, there's an election. Yeah, I didn't know if you knew that. It's coming up. But people who, there are people who all they think about is the end. Mm-hmm. They just constantly are worried about the mm-hmm. end, and it's like in Christ, actually, we have peace and and we have rest and yeah. we have hope, yeah. right? And this is the things that we should be reflecting. Yes. So I get what you're saying about like I don't want to hit that mark, and I end up hitting that mark right. because that's where my mind always. I is think at. that's a real thing. I've, there's an entire article, fifteen, seventeen, you can see about this. They talk about uh, is a, the pictures of somebody on a motorcycle. And I guess it's talking about this phenomenon, about how people, whenever they're so obsessed with missing something on the road, they will actually hit it. Mm. Um, and and I think that's the way our... I hit a tree at Scott's parents' uh, lake house. Really? Yeah, so I was... Oh, like, driving with your truck or... In my van. I was backing up, and I just wanted to get close to the tree, and I was looking at the tree, and I hit the tree. Right. Mm-hmm. Or now, like, and now my my van no longer beeps as you get close to something. So so let me look, here's a practical <laughs> that's example. Suppo- that's going to be helpful to you now. Now I pay more attention. <laughs> here's I a practical. Go, just pay less yeah, attention. Yeah, just, don't look at the road <laughs> when or, you're driving. Yeah. Whip it in there. <laughs> just or, stop looking. Or or another close way, right? Right. So for instance, Jesus take the wheels. <laughs> yeah. Can I talk a little bit, Scott? <laughs> that's what you've been talking. 
Yeah. So, like, one of the things that can happen... <laughs> You've been you, talking the whole time, actually. I, I know, and you know what? People love to hear no, that. No, he's been reading the whole they time. They love that voice. <laughs> Another example from sports... Um, is you did a hand motion to me? I, I look so at Scott. People, people can't see it. Be with like, me. Be with Scott, me. Prepare be yourself. Me. Don't leave Scott. One of the things that can happen is whether you're, you know, if you're a batter, and um, and you're just you're you, you're a great hitter, but all of a sudden you're just not able to hit the ball anymore. And what do you start doing? You focus. Yeah, you're like, I gotta get a hit. Yeah. Yeah. Just yep. stop swinging. I gotta hit. I gotta get the ball this <laughs> yeah. time. And what you actually find yourself doing is you're swinging for pitches you should have never looked at. at yeah. Or if you're a, a running back, right? You don't fumble the ball, but all of a sudden you've had a game with two fumbles. That's in your head. Yeah. And yeah. what are you doing right now? You're thinking. Thinking. And that's what the law that does to happens. us. With as sinners, whenever we start hearing the law, the first thing Satan does is to get us start thinking. And we become obsessive. That's what he did with our first parents. He started to start saying, really, God say that. Mm-hmm. Let's start thinking. And then eventually by doing that, we actually begin doing the thing that we, we didn't intend to do. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we need to do is move away. Because Satan always wants us to move away, as we'll see, from a level of this is finished to I need to do this now. And whenever he gets you to start doing that, then you're going to start falling. And so the the gospel actually consistently brings us back to our identity in Christ to set us free so that now we're able to serve our neighbors. And actually, we pray and we ask with God's blessing that we eventually will, that our right hand will not know what our left hand is doing eventually. Mm-hmm. That's really whenever you know you're, you're really progressing in righteousness. And I've, I've not reached that place, but I'm just saying I think that's a wonderful place whenever you're almost, you're so confident in God's love for you. That you're not even obsessed. You're not even obsessed with your own holiness. You're just trying to love your neighbor, and you're not trying to go around and think, "I did. I finally grew. I did five good things today. My heart was finally good today." You're not doing that. You're free. That's freedom, and I think that's where Luther's uh, driving us to. Lastly, here, and I'm going to keep talking for a minute. Yeah, go right ahead. It's your show. Yeah, yeah, it's a good show. Um, theologians of glory, lastly, use the law and wisdom. Oh, I guess use the law to become prideful, arrogant, confident in themselves. You see what Paul was like in Philippians chapter three. He talks about all the things he accomplished in the flesh, in himself, in his sinful nature. And all this ultimately does, right? Paul says in Romans 2, you consider yourself a teacher of the foolish, a teacher of children, um, as if you've got it all together. And Paul says, you really haven't listened to the law. And so if we go around boasting and we go to people and think, yeah, listen, uh, I, I know how to help you in this sanctification process. You need to do what I did. These five easy steps, you'll be great like me. That's actually the that's actually a person who's not sanctified. A person who's sanctified comes with humility and compassion and says, "I have been there before, but God got me through that." Right, and and maybe you can give them some wisdom to help fight sin in their lives, but they're ultimately not trusting that for their even for their sanctification, even for that. Lastly, theologians of the cross, and this is the last thesis. Uh, as this is who we want to be, we see the hidden wisdom of God and the good, good laws use. So I've I've kind of put these two these phrases together. Theologians of the cross, that's us believers. We do not use the world's wisdom to discover Jesus. Rather, we come to Christ crucified, and there we discover true wisdom. Theologians of the cross, believers, do not fulfill God's law to climb to God in Christ. Rather, the theologian of the cross is brought low by God's law in order to be raised in Christ alone. And so Luther has this quote. He says, The saintlier I have been, the more uncertain. So I say, despair of all things, 
throw yourself on Christ. He cannot fail you. Then I know where I must abide. And I think at the end of the day, that's where we have to go. Despair of all things except for Jesus and just throw yourself there. And if you put all your chips on him, um, you know, it's all finished and done. And we have hope in this life and the next. Okay, I'm done talking. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. I think this was educational for the three guys around me right now to sit at my feet. Um, I'm, I guess I'm kind of like a teacher of children here, like with a, like the Romans two. Thus, the theologian of glory. I'm a theologian <laughs> yeah, of glory just, sitting up here now. Here it comes. Here's here the application. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna get the music playing here. We don't have Jelly Roll to play. Could have. We could have. All right. Take care. God bless.